Welcome to the Make More, Keep More show, an irreverent but never irrelevant show dedicated to all things money. Hosted by Ron Carruthers and Dominic Cummins, two guys with 50 years of combined experience in sales and finance and a lifetime of talking nonsense. This week's episode, before we get to how are you, um, this is inspired by a gentleman that's followed me and I've interacted with on Twitter for years Never spoken with him live, just barely got his first name out of him, which I promise not to share because he goes by a handle. I don't know what his handle is over here on um, Instagram if he uses the same one or has a different one. But um, we started chatting. He's got a a main gig, a side gig. The side gig's going like gangbusters. I can't really say what, what it's in, but it is, they do require capital meaning they're they're doing stuff with physical goods that they need to scale up. And now banking is starting to get in the way. Yep. And so what inspired what, what I think we both agreed to chat about today was last week I was telling you guys some of the things I was looking at doing with my cash. Um, now that tax season is officially over, thank heaven, <sighs> Monday night. Um, and if I yawn on you guys, we went pretty hard right till the end. And then I've had three days of just trying to clean it, clean up everything that fell through the cracks in between. And, um, anyways, so I talked a little bit about where I was going to grow the business. I think you talked a little bit about what you were doing. So we thought today's episode would be a really good chance to chat about while things are on sale, buy them. Number one and number two, but how do you do it, and what do you do if financing isn't great and stuff? So anyway, Love that's it. kind of what we're chatting about today, right? Awesome, yeah. And if as as always, if people have questions, put them in the chat. We're happy to uh, try to get to them, and and uh, especially if they're on topic, <laughs> so we'll get to them. Yeah, but, and uh, occasionally they're not. <laughs> occasionally they're occasionally not. They're Sometimes we get topic. lizard people questions that I don't quite understand still to this day. But you don't really get those either. If I ever figure it out, I'll I'll, I'll let all of you know. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you want the lizard people coming for us, and I don't know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um. So, by the way, and any of you guys can find the back episodes at makemorekeepmoreshow.com. But um, so when you're scaling a business, I mean. Dominic, you've talked about ways to actually get a business started. And for people, we haven't talked about that in a long time. But where would you, if you're getting a brand new business started, what's the first couple steps you do? And then, and then let's move it into, okay, now the business is up and running and you're scaling, but where would you get started right out of, right out of the gate? Well, there's this concept that I remember hearing about many years ago called the pay certainty test, which is essentially to say, Will somebody actually pay you for this thing that you think is a great idea? And I know from my own personal experience that I've had what I thought were brilliant ideas that it turned out nobody would pay for. You know, it's it's yes, it's something somebody needs because just just because somebody needs it doesn't mean you have an initial actual uh, thing, viable product that somebody's going to actually buy. Um, Like I gave the example before I ran out of course on hiring and recruiting. Uh, which, you know, that was uh, eight years ago, six years ago, something like that. I put together this course and was like, okay, great. People need this. Nobody knows how to hire people. I see this as a problem all the time. It turned out nobody cared about solving the problem. Like they knew they had a problem. They said they did. They told me all the time they did, but they didn't want to watch a course on it to learn how to do it. So funny enough, 
what they started hiring me to do was actually come in and do it live. Like come just teach them, not, not buy an online course. And so that so was same, a, same information. Yep. Just delivered differently and not that worked. Yeah. And actually just to get involved. So they would literally retain me. Like, can you help us with the interviews? Not as a recruiter. I was kind of on the company side versus the recruiter side. Right. So they would say, well, can you come help us with the interviews? Can you just do all the stuff you're training? I mean, sure. Train us, but could you just do it? So I say that to just give an example of you've got to find out whether or not somebody's going to buy your product or not. So if you, before you go and invest, you and I, you, we've talked about this on past shows, like don't go get your S corp set up. Don't get all crazy on worrying about your LLC or whatever corporate structure you're going to do. You just start a DBA and see where it takes you and get some people to buy this thing. So the way to do that, I've, there's a um, famous copywriter, uh, book publisher, because you probably heard of Collier Publishing, but Robert Collier uh, was a was a copywriter, and he had this thing called the "Do Me a Favor" approach, and it was basically like, oh, there we go, the dog dog images. He, that it does really look like an Ewok. You're not kidding, right? <laughs> um, but uh, the okay. the you idea go. being, go to a few people. It doesn't have to be a lot. You don't have to have your dream 100 list. You don't have to do all that. You pick five people that you want to go to and talk to and say, Hey, I've got this idea and I'd love to get your take on it. And yes, make them make sure that those five people are people who could buy your product or might be interested in your product, but literally go in there with the thought process of like, can you help me? Can you, what feedback can you give me? And invariably in my experience, at least one or two out of those five will probably buy from you if it's a viable product. So that's where you got to start. Like before you worry about scaling, before you worry about starting a company, before you start worrying about putting a website together, all of that stuff, go have some conversations with some people that you think might be the ideal buyer and get their feedback. And I'm going to give you a quick tap on, um, tab onto that. Gary Halbert is arguably one of the, the most br naturally brilliant copywriters of all time. So if you, if you guys study copywriting at all, I don't know who the modern names are. I only know the older ones, but there's Gene Schwartz, there's Robert Collier, um, scientific advertising, right? Um, I can't think of his name right now. Um, Dan Kennedy, of course, legend, but then there's, there's Gary Halbert. And so Gary Halbert had a way and Gary was absolutely insane um life life personal life was completely out of balance and if you guys need a good laugh look up gary halbert's personal ad from 1985 he took out a full page ad in the la weekly to uh try and attract his dream girl it full page wrote all about his life and what his day was like and what he was into and it was pretty funny and he got thousands of responses huh. Um, and ended up with one of the girls there that dated for a pretty long time, pretty seriously. But Gary had a test where he would go to a bar yep. and he would read his sales letter and he would just be like, Hey, can I buy you guys a drink and read your sales letter and pick a bar that was kind of in line with where, where his audience would be. And, you know, it was the seventies. So things were a little different then. And he knew that if they told him his letter was great, Oh, that's great. That's, you know, oh, it's good. You're going to do great. He knew he had an absolute loser on his hands. He knew he had a winner when they're like, hey, man, how can I get that? And I will tell you, two of my clients have mentioned to me their business ideas, one of them being this, this guy of what he's involved in. And I'm like, 
man, how fast can I get the money together? That sounds really good. And then I stopped myself and um, they're quasi franchising and somebody's already doing it in San Diego. So I'm like, yeah, it's the last thing. And it's an industry I know less than nothing about. But the idea when I heard it, it made business sense immediately. Like, oh, dude. And he told me his numbers and they were insane. So I would say between the two of us, that gives you a pretty good idea of how there's the Ewok again. She's biting my feet. And so because with them little puppy teeth, that's why I keep grabbing her. But um, that's kind of how you know if you have a good idea is their market viability. When we got into the college planning business, I will tell you how I knew to get in that business was, first of all, I had been a high school valedictorian, did not go to college over money right away, went later to school. But um, what I knew is I was going to school to be a CFP and a CPA and kind of tripped over these rules. And we would do classes you know on how long-term care worked or what the new tax code changes were and i had a pretty steady i knew we spent x we'd get y people to the seminar and the minute we tried that for college planning we instantly instantly tripled all those numbers like all the rooms that we normally use were bursting at the seams people were dominic you've seen this with your own eyes a couple months ago when you came to one when we started those up again And um, all the rooms were bursting at the seams. The media was calling me, wanting me on the news. And I'm like, okay, I think we have something that that really there was a a lack in the market space. And by the way, that space is the last late stage college planning. You didn't save enough. Um, You don't have to be poor to benefit from that business. And we've actually had Ed on before. We'll get him on again and chat about that. But my point was, I, I went home kind of that first night and was like, dang, I think we just discovered a whole new market space. And um, I was in, I've been in that business for almost 30 years and the market never dries up. So that's kind of how and when I knew. All right, Scarlett, seriously, we'll put you back over here. So now we talk to, he's got a problem where they're making money hand over fist, but not quite fast enough to scale the way they want to. So I thought we'd kind of break this discussion down in a couple of areas. One is, what are some ways to scale? What are some ways to get financing? Why don't you take that any direction you want? Yeah, well, and I will say this. like, So I know I understand the concept of where we're talking about these guys where there you have a scalable product, but you and I have had this discussion as well. In fact, the very first traffic and conversion summit that I ever went to which for those of you who don't know, Traffic and Conversion Summit's a big annual conference sponsored by a, a digital marketer <clears throat> or owned by, was owned by, I don't know. Anyway, digital marketers involved with it. Who, who can keep those guys straight? Yeah. <laughs> and the first one, you had actually said, hey man, you should really go to this thing that's actually pretty cool. And so I went with you and I believe one of the first speakers you and I sat down to watch was Frank Kern. So many of you know, now you talk about- Uncle Frank. A halfway decent modern copywriter would be Frank Kern, right? Yeah. Um, and I'll- and all Frank's done, by the way, just so you guys know, and I love Frank. If Frank ever hears this, I say this with nothing but respect. But Frank's basically taken Dan Kennedy, Gary Halberts, John Carlton, um, the other guy's name I can't remember, those, those principles, and he's added a tiny bit of humor because yep. Frank is genuine. I've hung he's out with Frank, and Frank is genuinely a funny dude. Yep. Um, like, I'm funny, Frank's funny. And um, and a hillbilly twang, 
you know, well, hey, now, you know, y'all need to come there. And that, that's all he's done. And he put it on the Internet um, before those guys did. And so and again, I mean, that with nothing but respect. Yeah. But but that's really I think he'd so, probably yeah, admit hear... that. Yeah. Um, I don't think he would shy away from saying that. I mean, Ryan Dice, same thing. I mean, it's a lot of the Dan Kennedy stuff redone with his spin on it. I mean, yeah, that's Ryan's how not funny. most of us are. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but he's short. So you, uh, <laughs> but you, but you, if you look at one of the things that Dan, or excuse me, not Dan Kennedy, uh, Frank Kern said during that presentation, he rolled out this whole thing and he was talking about how people come to him for helping scale their business. And sometimes the answer is you shouldn't scale your business. And let me, let me right. explain what that means. So he has this expression. And if there's one takeaway from today's call or today's, uh, podcast is, is just, just write this one down. He broke it down into three things. This is not our content. It definitely comes from Frank Kern, but it was awesome. He wrote down stabilize, optimize, expand. And then he started to break that down. And he said, what people do is people tend to race towards the expand. Like we're doing pretty well. Oh man, we should expand. Let's add on another product or let's add on another division or let's hire more people or whatever, whatever your definition of expansion looks like, which is another way to say scaling, right? He said, but calm down for just a second. Make sure the business is stable. Because sometimes if you try to expand without a stable foundation, it's like, you know, to, to not use an overused uh, expression, but like if the foundation isn't good, the building's not going to be good. So you got to make sure that the base level of the company, what does that mean? Is it, you can be bringing in a ton of cash, but you can be burning a ton of cash, right? So that's not necessarily stable. It could be, but it's not necessarily stable. Uh, you could not really have your pricing figured out. You could have issues with the current product that, and you're thinking about rolling out a new one, right? But you are the, the current, the, the base level product still has some glitches to it if it's software or something's not right with it. So any number of things could constitute whether you stabilize. And then he said, then you go to the phase of optimizing it. And in a lot of cases, especially for those of us in service-based businesses, now I know what you're referring to as a product-based business, but let's just say it's a service-based business you may want to just double your rates. In fact, that's a lot of what his suggestion is. And he said, it's really funny because he said, people will say like, okay, I want to expand. He goes, okay, well, and you got to picture the, what is it? Tennessee accent or whatever he's from. Yeah. Georgia. Georgia. A man's from, from rural Georgia. <clears throat> Y'all got to just double your price. <laughs> and people go, well, I can't, I can't double my price. Just try it. And invariably it will, because if it's working, if it's really something people want, they will pay more for it. So double the price. Well, then what that leads to is a need to stabilize again, right? Because now there's some things, maybe you double the price and now people go, oh, well, you know, they, maybe the feedback is you need to add a couple things to that, or you need to be, you know, the, Hey, I'm, I love it, but I'm paying double. And could you fix a couple of things? So you, you're going to run through a stabilization process again. And he's like, you're, literally year over year, people come, all right, Frank, I did this. I doubled my price. We, we stabilized again. I'm thinking about expanding and he'll say, just double your price again. And he said, you literally could get into that cycle where you're just raising your price. And maybe it's not double, but raising your prices and you never actually need to expand. And one of the examples, I don't remember what the numbers were, but like she went from like, what was it? 300,000 a year to like 2 million a year. And he's like, so why do you want to expand again? Like, why do you want the right. headache? And and she was Stop like, that's, a, that's, that's kind of a good point, right? So the point being is sometimes the answer to scaling is to not scale. And I know that sounds kind of odd. I'm not suggesting you don't grow. 
we're not saying that at all, but scaling involves a whole nother level of stuff where you're, you're by the definition of scaling to me is stacking on additional things, additional people. Like you're not just growing by 20%, you're growing by a hundred percent. You're growing just exponential type of growth to your organization. And I think having, I know having been in those types of businesses where we sold, I mean, so I've told the story here before we ended up selling a business for about half a billion dollars, the software company I was part of. Um, I'll tell you, when you start scaling like that, you get investor boards, you get people with an opinion, you have to, you get into situations where the people throwing big money at you are probably may or may not keep you around if you're the founder of that company. Um, they are, it becomes very binary. And so like, you know how you hired your cousin to get started and the investor comes in and goes, your cousin's out. And now you got to have those family dinners with your cousin that you oh, fired. Yeah. I mean, the, a lot of that stuff comes with scale. Again, I'm not against anti-scaling, but just understand scaling a business sounds really cool. And it is because it's fun to sell a business, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're like, it, it could, it could, it creates a lot of other things. So I know that wasn't totally an answer to your question when you said, no, that's you great. Scale, by but the way, I'll throw, um, never mind. I lost it. Keep going. No, I mean, I, I think that's the thing. It's just, it, it, you know, take a real evaluation, true evaluation. I'll tell one little more story and maybe your thought will come back to you. I remember I a couple of years ahead. ago, I had this lady that was talking to me, really nice lady. And uh, she lived up in kind of the mid Midwest, Northern Midwest area, Montana. I don't know where you would call that. Anyway, so she lived up there and then I was like, cool, what's your business goal? Like we were just doing an evaluation for my mastermind that I used to run. And she was like, well, I want to grow the business to $50 million. And I was like, okay, that's a lot. All right. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I just, and there was no short version of the story is she really had no idea what $50 million business was like. And she was only really running it to 50 million because people had said like, that's a really good number and you make a ton of money. And so then I'm trying to find out like, what does she need to live? Like if she made 200 grand, she'd be like the wealthiest person in Southern Montana. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so and I remember her and wonderful lady, sweet lady. But by the end of the call, she was like in tears, but like tears of relief. Cause she was like, Oh my God, I, I had no idea. So sometimes this concept of scaling the seven figure, multi seven figure business is not what people are actually seeking. They actually want to run a business that actually just supports their life. I'll throw a couple of things on that. Um, I don't know if you guys, Dominic, have you ever read um, Felix Dennis's how to get rich? Have you ever read that one? You have not. You need to read that one. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. So for those of you guys who don't know, back in the day, um, and this was like 15 years ago, Maxim Magazine was like one of the greatest magazines on the planet. (laughs) And it was just like, it had like pretty girls, but really one well-written, in-depth, like 6,000 word article. Uh, They did one once on a guy, the only guy to ever successfully print his own money. Um. Uh, they did another one on the submarines that the cartels were building before anybody else knew of these, these tiny little submarines that they were using to get around customs. And then they would have like jokes and music reviews. Well, the guy who published that was Felix Dennis. And he was this real, when you guys are done, you got to go look him up. Felix Dennis. And if you guys want a book, a great book, how to get rich and um, how to get rich was basically how he built his publishing empire and the stories are great like he was roommates with lemmy of motorhead in an abandoned warehouse back in the day 
um, Neil, whatever the heck Neil's last name is of the Pet Shop Boys used to work for him on a music magazine. He was an editor and came to him one day like, I'm interviewing all these musicians. I can do what these guys do. I'm leaving. I'm going to go start a band. And um, if any of you guys are old enough to know who the Pet Shop Boys are, it, it worked out. Neil Tennant. Um, <clears throat> but his his story in How to Get Rich is you think you want to be rich, but you really don't. And that's the whole preface. And, and his definition of rich, by the way, was 50 million. But he's like, let me tell you what you're going to have to go through. And what most people want is, and most people that I've trained in my field, they just want to be comfortable. They want to have steady income, more than they can spend so they can save. And then generally when income gets to around a quarter of a million net adjusted for areas like frank kern if you ever listen to frank he's always buying a new rolls royce or something like that i gotta hang out with my buddy lamborghini boy that we call him when it's two lamborghinis and three other vehicles and rvs those guys are outliers most people get to about 250 300 net and then want to begin to scale down time right but that book's a great book and by the way one other one other quick thing and then we will actually get to this well really we are talking about this subject um one of my friends Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob is um, over at the philosophy department of Baylor. And I met Dr. Bob going to a Roger Waters doing the wall concert 10 years ago. Bob was just getting divorced and gotten remarried. I was, you know, fresh out of a divorce, not that long, even though I was remarried also. And we went with my buddy, John over to Pink Floyd in Austin. We sat up all night, drinking whiskey. And he started telling me the story of his current wife's ex-husband, who's Chip Tate. Now, if any of you guys are whiskey people, you know who Chip Tate is. He founded Balcones and um, later went on. He actually got banned from his own company after threatening to kill the investors (laughs) um, because he didn't like them meddling in his business. But when you start adding investors on and things like that, that's the sort of stuff that you got to deal with. And Chip did not want to deal with that. And so if you guys have some time about investor relations gone bad, <laughs> go pull Chip Tate Balcones. There's a 4,000-word New York Times article about how it went oh so wrong. And I think now he his non-competes up. I don't know if he's making whiskey again um, or brandy or something like that. And if any of you guys have ever had Balcones whiskey, it's good whiskey. Or at least it was back when he was in charge of it. And, um, but yeah, so Dr. Bob's current wife, Margaret, her ex husband is Chip Tate. And he worked at Baylor while he was getting the whiskey company off the ground. So it's a, it's a tale of investment gone bad. By the way, for those of you just joining us, this is the Make More Keep More Show. You can find back episodes at makemorekeepmoreshow.com. Dominic puts those together and we have intro music on that, which we don't really get over here. Um, We're talking about scaling and financing a business. And we really spent the early part of this show talking about how do you, what's a cheap way to test if your business is any good? Do people want it? And can you get some customers? Then we talked about, um, what, what is it? Stabilizing, optimizing, expanding. And often that can be as simple as making sure you are at the upper end of the price limit if your business lends itself to that. So again, not every business can do that. We get that. Um, But 
many of you in service businesses could um, do that without without really breaking a sweat and your breakage on clients might be minimal. You know, say currently you're closing three out of every five prospects at five, $5,000 sale. I'm totally making this up. But if you got it up to 8,000, you can close two out of five prospects and you're still a thousand dollars ahead. Right. So, you know, something to think about that. But now let's say you're actually trying to either actively grow like we are, where we're looking at purchasing a competitor, either a tax office for somebody who's totally burnt out or a financial office for someone because the market's down, it doesn't want to take any more phone calls. But what about if you're looking for financing? Dominic, what's, I've got some experience with this, but what's been your experience with this? Yeah. So I think there's obviously there's traditional bank financing is, is one route. Um, but remember, and I think, what did you quote it? You quoted Mark Twain last week or something, or you quote him every week, quote him every week, pretty much. Baker Uh, is a fellow who will lend you your money when the sun is, lend you his umbrella when the sun is shining and want it back the second it begins to rain. Yep. And you basically for, for all intents and purposes factor that you have to have at least a dollar in the bank for every dollar that you're looking to, 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 to borrow. I mean, the banks are just tough. Now there are, there are exceptions to that. There are some bank situations. There's hard money lending, um, which is, you know, somebody, which is legal loan sharking. <laughs> so that's yeah. probably not a nice way to say it, but I mean, it really is. You're talking, you know, it's what it is aggregated huge percentages per year that you're paying in and, and, uh, and that type of stuff. But I, the route that I, the, 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 um, Financing that I have the most experience with is investor-based financing, right? So you get somebody who's going to write a check for your business. So I work with a couple of these groups. I've been on the other side of it with the software company that I was at for for a number of years. Um, that was, you know, j- j- uh, or I was there a number of years ago, I should say. Uh, and they were, you know, we from very beginning we knew we were trying to sell. So there's a whole structure that if you know that your ultimate goal is to exit, you're going to look for investors of a particular type that are going to support and likely the investors that you want to buy your business. Um, there's a, there's quite a bit about this, but like, for instance, if you do want to sell your business at some point, uh, you're probably already too late to start to identify, like you're later than you think you are about identifying who it is, is that's going to buy it. And you may actually want them involved with the growth of your business. So for instance, in that software company, the company that ultimately bought us was sitting on the board for four or five years prior to the actual acquisition because they wanted to structure and see how things were growing and, and see that. But that was obviously pretty big money. But I will tell you this about, about investors is when you get into investor-based stuff, now there's the crowdfunding type of stuff that's out there. I forget what some of those websites are that are um, not Kickstarter. Just, well, not yeah, just Kickstarter, but there's even ones now where you can go on like bought this company. So we had Ryan on a couple months uh, months ago with he had his business, Fold, Foldem. Um, which is fascinating, fold up temporary housing or permanent like this, this, this studio that I'm in, he could build one of these and it just pops up. Literally, they build these things, but their competitor is a company called Boxable. That and, did, and by, and by the way, real quickly, when Ryan was on, we were all like, damn, I need one of those for my backyard. And right. Again, perfect proof of concept that we we're all trying, I'm trying like, what do you charge for those again? And yeah. How fast can you get me one? Exactly. So, and they're anyway. doing really, really well, you know. So they, uh, but so for instance, Boxable, as their competitor, went to a crowdfunding type of thing. And what happens with crowdfunding? It's 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 in a 
it's a way that that is attractive to some because it feels like you can get money pretty quickly. In some cases, you can. And it feels like, well, okay, cool. Then I got all these people. The problem is, is that what it does is it tends to scare off big investors after the fact. So let me give an example. Right. When uh, I was talking, I was working with the investor group that was looking at Foldem a little bit. Uh, and they, if they had gone with crowdfunding, they would have exited out of the deal immediately. Because then they say, well, I don't know all the people that are involved. Because in crowdfunding, you technically now have hundreds, if not thousands of little micro owners of your business. Um, and now the way those are structured, you know, it's not like they can't be bought out, but it just adds an, a layer of complexity to those who are, who are looking to invest in your business. And so it's, it's something that they typically don't like to do. The other thing is, is if you're looking for big enough money, if you're looking in the multi hundred thousands to multi millions of dollars worth of investment, you really do have to be prepared that there is a good chance that you're going to give up at least 51% of that business. And for the time being, right, it's it's rare to see, in my experience, now I've, I've heard it happening, but it's rare to see somebody write you a $5 million check or $10 million check without having some control and say in the, the operation of that business. And so that's hard for people sometimes to say. And do like, you, and do you blame them? I mean, no, really, if we're going to be an adult not. about it, do you blame them? Yeah, they're writing no. a big check and they want to be in on it, right? Here's yeah. the thing. And this is where it's interesting because I have been with businesses who are like, I'm not giving up 51% of my business. Forget that. All right. Well, here's the thing. When you compare something like crowdfunding, for example, versus a private investor or investment group who's going to come in and take a percentage of the business, uh, crowdfunding is going to hand you cash and then you go. So Boxable is a great example of this. For all intents and purposes, I can't remember the number, but I'll say it's like they've taken five or $10 million worth of crowdfunded cash. Nobody knows where it went and they're still trying to raise money. That's a lot of money to burn through. Most people, and I give a presentation on this, but most of us are not trained CEOs. Let's be honest. Like, yes, I'm the CEO of my company, but that doesn't mean I could go if like uh, Dell had an, I don't know why I picked Dell, but whatever. If Dell had an opening for a CEO, I couldn't just go apply and be like, well, I've been the CEO for RightMind for eight years now. Right. Right. These guys have their MBA from Wharton and they've been groomed since they came out of college to be CEOs. That's typically how that that type of role works. So we're not trained to do this stuff. So when, it, when you go crowdfunding, then you get five million dollars worth of cash in the bank and you think you know how to spend it versus if you get a private investor who comes in like the, the group that I work with, we have like two or three attorneys, a couple of accountants, guys who've built one of the guys, one of the main investors, the guy who actually puts a lot of the money in has started 73 businesses or something like that. Like, you know, and, and owns a couple right now that he has tremendous amount of experience with shipping from China. He has all, he like used to fly to China once a month or twice a month to, to work on things. He knows factories out there. That's the type of resource you want. So then they can write you a $5 million check. Yes, they have 51% of your company, but they also say, oh, Oh, that contract you had? No, we're going to rewrite that. Oh, nope. Our attorney's going to take care of that. Oh, you need some warehouse space? Actually, one of our investors has 100,000 square feet of warehouse space that we can rent out pretty cheap. Yeah. Oh, oh, you need, right. And they they come with this pile of resources. Plus, they tell you stuff like, yeah, don't do that. That was ter- that's a terrible idea. <laughs> like, don't, don't make that partnership. That's going to, because we've, or they know those people. In fact, one of them, I, was, we, I play golf with one of the guys in, we were chit-chatting about this and he he was talking about a deal. I was not involved with this one, but he invested in this company 
and there was some debt, there were some creditors or some people kind of pissed off some vendors. They personally, the investor group literally flew to the various locations where the vendors were, sat down, chatted with them for a minute and said, hey, if we pay you cash for this amount, will you take a cash payment of 70% of what we owed you? Can we renegotiate the terms? Like who does, that doesn't happen when you're talking about people that are, are uh, when you're doing crowdfunding, for instance, right? right? So to answer that question, I would probably feel comfortable disclosing the names of the companies I specifically am talking about, but like I do get involved with an investor group um, that and we've, they, they've invested and I've helped them with them. They usually bring me in to kind of help with some of the sales and marketing stuff uh, and leadership stuff, but uh, they are companies that, uh, they invest in a variety of companies, everything from like electric bikes to, I don't know, uh, chemical suppliers to, I mean, it's, it's all over the board. Yeah. So that's one, that's one way to do it. Crowd. We got crowdfunding. We've got getting an investor. Um, I'll tell you what I chatted. Let me, let me tell you a little bit more about this guy's business without giving the game away. Basically they turn around and by the way, I think it's Jessic DM Dom, if you want to chat with him. So um, just reach out to him and you guys can chat offline. Um, But anyway, back to, back to this. So basically what they do is they buy a product from a major manufacturer. Okay. A name that everybody would know. They retrofit it relatively inexpensively, and then they turn around and rent it out. So, and what happens is they're going like crazy and more people want to rent these then can actually, you know, they can, the, 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 the demand is greater than the supply and it's something that will continue to grow. So the problem is they're running into financing issues. Always a so good place was, to be, by the way, when the supply oh, or, or the demand outpaces supply, right? I absolutely. mean, any of us who took economics 101, uh, that is, that's a good place to be. And usually means absolutely. you could charge more. Absolutely. And I don't, we didn't even get into that side of the equation. It was specifically, hey, what are your thoughts? Now, I'll tell you what mine were. First of all, I was like, if you guys ever want to know a guy about raising money from friends and family and acquaintances, there's a real estate guy named Jay Connor. Jay Connor is a disciple or a student of Ron LeGrand, who's probably, in my opinion, one of the smartest real estate investors there is. Um, and he'll freely admit he makes more teaching it than he does doing it, but he does deals every single month and he's always talking about him. He's almost 80. So if any of you guys want to learn that game, highly recommend Ron Legrand. And if you want to raise money, private money, so not hard money, which is where you're going to a professional, but private money where you're basically getting people to turn over their cash to you. Jay Connor does the best job of explaining it. So I'm like, look, even though that his course is probably 500 bucks, and it's only a couple hours long. He's going to teach you stuff that I can't teach you. And just wherever the word real estate is in, insert your thing in there and start talking to people. That's one way you can do it. And by the way, we've done that and raised several hundred thousand dollars in a really short period of time. Um, now, just, remember, can I add there. a word of caution on that one, though, too? I mean, there's a, that's absolutely how most businesses start. Right. Is yeah, to, to do the family. family money and things. Just understand that that when when you scale, let's hope that you scale to a point that you do the the 
just just cautious how many of them and who, right? Because again, when the investor group 100%. comes in, um, we have analyzed, we come in and go, okay, well, who are all these people that's contributed money and how can we get rid of them? I mean, it, and as it's fast and as, as fast as, fast as, as possible. possible right? And sometimes that's your totally. mom we're getting rid of. Now we're paying her off, <laughs> like, right? We're paying her, paying her to go away. But like, that is, that is one of the early discussions is who are these people and how quickly and can how we can get we them get out? What does that convertible note look like? And I will say this, this is one of the things the, uh, one of the attorneys I know that does this type of stuff says uh, convertible notes are usually worth about as much as the toilet paper in your bathroom. But that's, you know, that's just investors to, to talk about that kind of stuff. So just, you know, just be cautious on that, but absolutely be all over getting some money from your family. That's not a bad way to go. That's one way. Now, here's another way that we chatted about. He he doesn't have two years tax returns. So we talked to a bank because the business was relatively new. And but what he does have is balance sheets showing that it's growing all the time. And welcome from Nigeria, by the way, yeah. official Toby. Um, so he has balance sheets showing that his his money's, you know, they're they're making money hand over fist. So I was like, the next thing I would do is I would make a list of every banker in the state of that he's in of small community banks. And I would be talking to two of them a week and I would be talking, I would be calling for the CEO or somebody in the head thing. And I would be explaining to them, this is what we're doing. We don't have the two years returns, but here's what we're trying to do. Can I establish a line of credit with you guys? And we're there. So that was another, that was another option. Um, and my guess is he'll probably talk to 20 or 25 of them before he'll get one that needs to make their numbers that'll go, you know, what? I like this guy. We don't need, we can make, we can make an exception. We don't need two years returns for you. Mm-hmm. And how many exceptions do we need? We need exactly one exception. Right. We need one guy or gal that needs, that needs to make a loan that goes, you know what? I'll take a chance on you. All right. Um, the other thing that I suggested that this company, the manufacturer has their own credit aid, you know, their own bank. And he's like, well, I talked to them and that they weren't very interested. They don't really like what we do. Uh, cause I was like, have you called the manufacturer? And, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm talking their headquarters, their world headquarters. Have you called over and found an executive? in charge of moving product because i would bet with what you're describing to me people rent what you sell them and then come back when they're done and are like hey man i want to buy one of these can you guys can you guys he's like oh we do it all the time he goes we take the product from the manufacturer retrofit it for them the way we did our own and sell them off you know to markup so they're in another business as well so i'm like i would be calling that manufacturer and I would get one of their C-level guys and be like, look, I need some exceptions made. Let me show you what we're doing here. And I don't think it's an area where the manufacturer would try to swoop in and put them out of business on it. And just, I think you get them to write you and they've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they can be like, okay, you need a few million for financing or your entire company needs 50 million. Here's the line of credit. So, so it, and, and it goes kind of the way where um, my thoughts are always 
and I got this from Dan Kennedy, is if you've got a problem, a business problem, sit down and try to brainstorm as many ways of solving it as you can. And then work on as many of them as possible simultaneously. Yep. And so that's the way I would approach the financing. Now, once we get two years, hey, and I might even tell that to the bank. Because his own bank was like two years. I'd be like, absolutely no problem. But just so you know, I am actively speaking to other banks. And if I get one that doesn't need that two-year thing... You guys see the money coming in and out. I will be moving the account over to them and I will be moving all of my accounts. So I just want to be fair and let you guys know. Right. And I would tell every single bank that I talk to, like, look, I understand if you guys are telling me two years is the rule, but just so you know, I'm going to find one of your competitors that won't need the two years that can go off one year plus a almost full year because we need to make this thing go. And I think he'll get somebody that between those, I would be surprised if he got a hold of the right person at that company that they wouldn't pull the checkbook out and be like, wait, you guys are doing what? And how many of these are you going to move? And all right, we can repossess them. It, you know, we can come find them. I think it'll go. Yeah. So anyway, well, that's, it's, my, it's, that's, that's kind of the good. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, that's kind of looking for those adjacencies. Like who, who's adjacent to your product? Who is, who else is winning when you win and go to those people and see if you can work out something. Cause I'm thinking like the, the, the supplier, obviously I don't know this company, but like the supplier of the product he's doing retrofitting, he's probably moving some product for them. They see the opportunity. If the worst case scenario that happens, they may just give them much more favorable terms on the purchase of the product. If, if they don't write the check and that could be huge, right? Because usually it's cash flow is the issue, right? We've talked about cash is king so many times and they have to put out X amount of dollars to pick up this product. Maybe they change around the financing terms and say, hey, you're good for this. We're, we're good. We can't write you a check for $5 million. But what we can do is change up your financing terms and we're going to give you 60 days. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, dude, I can sell that. And I've got now I'm parking the cash for another 30 and I'm using it for something else. And I can put it back, you know. So all of a sudden those little types of situations work. I'll tell you, too, like having come from banking for years, the people in the branch are not usually the people you want to talk to. Um, so even if you're going into a larger commercial bank, you know, the the city groups, the chases, the wells, the B of A's, all those types of guys, their lending um, type stuff is usually pretty set in stone. But when you start to work with commercial bankers in the back end, then you get in a genuine underwriting where you get somebody who's actually looking at the account. A lot of what goes on in the branch is just automated. So if they just right. type in the numbers, it either fits or it doesn't fit. Whereas the guys who work in the commercial banking, usually not on the floor of that branch, they sometimes are there or in a back office. And some of the buildings I worked at in banking years ago, they were in a separate building out behind the bank. I mean, they could even be in a completely different office space. But if you get a hold of those commercial bankers, now you have somebody who actually gets it, gets it a little bit more. But yep. also and do that's your who research. You're looking for. Yeah, and do your research too, because we talked about this in one of the early episodes as well. Is you may want to talk to your your uh, tax advisor, like Ron, and say, "What do my tax returns need to say?" And now you start to work in with you know filing an amendment and doing something and paying a <clears throat> little more tax than you wanted to but it looks a lot better from the lending perspective and now you have you have a team working on behalf where ron could you probably could talk directly to a underwriter 
and say, what do you need it to say? Well, it needs to say, okay, the money, you're not doing anything illegal. You're just saying, okay, we can shift this around. I mean, it's, it's not a, not sure. Particularly when you get into things like depreciation and segregate cost segregation and things like that, you can ignore those and go back and amend them later. Right. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, my, my kind of take on the whole thing, like Dominic just said is there, you know, the branch floor is not set up for that. You need the people behind, you know, the guy or gal behind the guy behind the guy. So you're looking for that person, the, the true decision maker yep. who can be there. And, and that's, I recommend small co- community banks only because you've got a tighter knit and they're going to be easier to find than trying to find who in that area makes the decision at Wells or Chase or something like that. Yeah, and there's a there, when you get into small community community banks, that their their desire to support community businesses is big. So you know if you're located in, you know Carlsbad, um, LA is kind of a bad example, but if you're in Carlsbad where you live, right, then in a Carlsbad community bank might be more interested in supporting a Carlsbad based business, and they they it's just kind of good for that. Um, you do you can usually get to the CEO if he's not sitting on eight other boards and doing absolutely nothing you can uh, be but you can get to the CEO of, of those community banks a little easier they're actually in one of the branches usually there's not some yep, mass, massive usually. headquarter you know and so they're they're a little different you also get some of those community banks smaller community banks especially if you start getting into what I've noticed like the Midwest Wyoming's and and I guess that's not Midwest really but like Wyoming and stuff is like some of the wealthy oil guys up there just start a bank as for some tax reasons, like, you know, so they're parking cash and it's kind of an investment vehicle and, and they, their, their underwriting thing is completely different than somebody else's might be. So I think you get, yeah, the community, the smaller community bank situation can be often pretty good because the CEO might just have to go to a, a board of people who look and go, Oh yeah, we like this business. We'll write the check. And then I've even heard of stories where one of those board members is like, okay, the bank's not going to underwrite it, but I'm interested now you get your private investor. So it's, there's, there's any number of, because private investors, people that are good for that type of thing are often sitting on the boards for a small community bank and a small community bank is turning to their board for some of this questioning of whether or not they can write a check that big. Yeah, I would. And the only other thing I would add to it, Dominic, is there, Socrates once said, dig the well before you thirst. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, if you're in it, if any of you guys are in a position and you think you might need money, like Dominic said, the general rule is we're going to lend you a dollar for every dollar that you have, you know, basically, oh, you don't need it. Great. Here you go. Um, I would set those rip for anybody, anybody listening is I would start working on those relationships. If you think you're going to need it, start working on those relationships now, mm-hmm. try to set that stuff up. Now, um, my man that I was talking to this week, he's already into it. And again, they're having a growing problem. So he can work it on the fly, but now he's got something that you might not have, which is proof of concept and numbers to go with it. Just not two years tax returns. Right. So what else, man, should we talk about today? What else is on your mind? Anything else on that subject? Uh, On the lending side of things? No, I think about I've exhausted what I want to get into on that. That's there. There's a lot. I mean, I will tell you like, Every time I have this conversation with the owner of a company that, hey, you might have to give up 51%. I, I understand the feeling, um, but just understand that's a lot of what these guys are going to look for. And so, but it ends up being good because if you get the right investor group, well, actually one, that's that's actually what I want to call on that part of it. I'll talk about 
you're married to this investor group for a while. So do your due diligence, spend some time with them. You know, if you can go out and play golf with one of them, I mean, get to know these people because they are going to be living, they are going to be all up your rear end after they write you that check. So just, just make sure you're, you, you're comfortable with it. Does it feel like they're in line with what you're trying to do? Like, you know what I mean? Is there an alignment before did they, are they excited about your vision? That's a big deal too. Cause I've seen investor groups are like, yeah, sure. We'll throw some money at it. Oh, okay. But if they're not interested, they're not going to help all that much. And you actually right. do want their help. So if they're as excited, like, holy crap, this is awesome. Let's do it. But also be understanding that in a lot of investor groups too, they're also thinking in their head, do we need this guy? Could we do this ourselves? Sure. So just be cautious. You want to make sure you're just in bed with the right people. Good advice, man. Um, markets are still all over the place. Yeah. What did, what did, I was, uh, I just did two days of that training. I'm exhausted. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but the, oh, uh, two days. yeah, you did your, you did your, um, leadership part, academy. Well, we're not allowed to say leadership academy. No, I think we can say no. I, it's LA County fire is who I'm doing it for. And I think it seems to be, and it went really well. We actually had an hour long meeting with the chief, the interim chief after the event last night. So did four, four, uh, four cohorts of training on that one. So it was, uh, whew. <laughs> it was tired. I'm long tired. Is it, how long is it? How long is each training? They were three hours. Uh, so we did three hours, took an hour break, did another three hours, and we did that for two days. And we got six nice. six months of that. And then you go back and you you you're like rotating around and doing ongoing training, right? Yep, six months of that. So six month academy for them. So it's really cool. Nice. I mean, I will tell you, man. Every time, and I'm sure we all know this. It's so funny when you throw out the word hero to anybody to that group. They're just immediately like, that is, you know, I mean, they did like, they have one, no part of that word, but it's so, but then it's like, you get, you do get to chat with them and say like, yeah, but do you understand what my son thinks when he sees your truck fire truck go by? I mean, right. You're, you're everything to him. Like, you know what I mean? And, and honestly, us adults too, we see the fire truck go by, like we may have another opinion when a police car goes by, but when a fire truck goes by, you're always, I don't know. There's something about, maybe that's just me. But you, there is something about it that you just you just appreciate what they do. And the stories are harrowing. Uh, I mean, it's just every time I'm around these guys, they're just uh, unbelievable. I, I can't say enough. Like, they're unbelievable what they do every day and what they're willing to do and how hard it's been during COVID, the amount of death they saw. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a lot. And and um, we were actually talking through one interesting story that with one of the, the firefighters and she was telling a story. She's like, you know, it's, 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 it's all depends on what you're seeing. She's like, cause you know, I mean, we'll, we'll hunt gunshots pretty regularly. She's like, so she goes on, on uh two back to back days, one gunshot victim. She's like handled it. She goes, honestly, like, I don't remember the specifics of the store. I just went and did the job. And then she's like the next day, it was a convenience store owner who got shot. And it was the convenience store. Where I bought my breakfast for years. And she's like, mm-hmm. I saw this guy every day. And she's like, that's hard. Like I knew the wow. guy, like, and so, you know, that the stuff that they see and that they deal with and process, we were talking a lot about like the impact of PTSD and how can leadership can help with that. And it's just a, it's a, it's an interesting conversation, but yeah, it's, it was, uh, exhausting, but awesome. So nice. When do you go back for your next round? Uh, next round's in November. Got it. 
Yeah, we finished up. This is not heroic at all, but we finished up tax season. And then I've been working till 10 o'clock every night trying to get just caught up on stuff that kind of got slid to the side. So I'm fairly exhausted. Yeah. In fact, you can you can tell I'm like, Dom, are we even doing the show tomorrow? Like, man, are you tied up in class? Like, no, no, we got to do the show. So <laughs> we here for the um, people. We, we're here for the people, it, it, tired or not. But they probably noticed it yeah. <laughs> that we were a little they energy might. was a little down on today. But oh, yeah. And I slept until exactly like, OK, it's 10 minutes before the show. I got to get up, throw a shirt on and I'm one shot of espresso. In. Yeah, no, I had to get, <laughs> yeah. get up early because I took all this gear with me to, to record and do the stuff from the from the training and so uh, i was like up early this morning because i got home last night and i was like i am not setting it up tonight i'm so tired so i was up early this morning it was still dark out trying to set it all up again <laughs> so. i know right okay seriously let me tell you guys if they ever put me in charge let me tell you the first thing that i'm doing the very first thing is the monday after super bowl sunday is a national holiday all right Nobody should have to come to work that day, or we can have a vote and move it to Saturday. I'm good with either one. The set, the very second thing I'm doing is daylight savings time is gone. <laughs> All right. Uh, we can pick, we can pick, we'll move it later, move it earlier, but we're done switching it back and forth. And I am old enough to remember when they moved it the first weekend of October, but then they wanted to move it to after Halloween. Yeah. But I mean, it was dark at my house at six thirty in the morning. Yeah, pitch black. At seven, it was barely light, like barely, barely, barely light out, and that's ridiculous. Yeah, so, I don't know what we're supposed to be... do well, for that race. I'm doing uh, November fifth. Uh, that hundred mile bike ride is uh, supposed to kick off like at six thirty in the morning. I'm like, it's gonna be pitch black. I don't know how that. Because the time changes on Sunday. Yeah, the next day. Yeah. Yeah, the hour so, 2 a.m. in the morning. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So. Well, listen, guys, I think we've uh, I think we've covered some good ground today. I think it's good. We're going to call it a wrap. Dominic, unless you got anything else you want to say. If you guys want to find all the back episodes, it's makemorekeepmoreshow.com or and anywhere before, you go pod- podcast. Or whoever it was, um, reach out to Dominic. Anybody who wants to chat up Dominic or needs leadership training, send him, you know, send him your DMs, give him some love. We're going to do next week. All right. With you, Dominic, I figured we'd chat over some year end tax breaks. Um, No, we might have a guest next week, somewhere in the next two or three episodes. I'll get a list together of you guys of kind of year end stuff you can do. If you're, you know, don't have a business. And if you do have a business, by the way, we just saved one of our clients, 2,500 bucks in, um, 30 seconds. And actually it's going to work out to being $20,000 Wow, cash net cash because her accountant missed that her kid was going to school and she qualified for the uh, American opportunity credit. And we caught it. The client called to ask another question. Well, she wasn't a client then now she is. And, um, I'm like, just go back to your, your guy missed this. Like, just go back to him, ask him to include it in. She's like, he won't. I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean he won't? Well, he won't. I'm like, all right, well, you just got a new account and you just got rid of the old one. Send that over to me. We'll have it done in a few minutes. I'm going to charge you for it, but it's not going to tra- cost you that much. So we're going to go over a list of stuff that you guys need to pay attention to because it is there's no excuse for this account missing it. And yet it happens all the time. 
So you've got to know a baseline enough of this, which is what I always say. Nobody cares about your money like you do. Not even us. We care about your money a lot, which is why we do the show. But um, you got to know at least the baseline because no idea how it works. Absolutely. So anyway. You can actually we'll it's go just a good there. life lesson. Uh, life lesson of uh, nobody cares about your insert whatever as much as you do, right? Health, your yeah. business, your any of, it. any of it, right? So just remember Endless that. style, if you need tax help, DM me. But make sure you know it's tax. Just say, ta- I need help with my taxes. They'll set you with me. Otherwise, if you say something different, they might put you with somebody else on my team. What's going on over there? Anyway, guys, we appreciate having you. As always, Dominic, I appreciate having you. And um, appreciate you this, I can't me. speak for you. This is the first Friday. I don't have any appointments. So God knows I got a lot to catch up I on. Know, me and too. So is, if, I if you've been trying to find me and I haven't been um, real and, and people... Here's what's also funny is people come to me and they're like, well, I thought tax season was in April. And I'm like, right. For the normal, <laughs> easy tax returns, those get done in April. But it, clients that own businesses generally turn around and push off the corporate um, returns until November 15th, which then means their personal returns can't get done afterwards. So we're actually busier on the second tax tax season deadline than we are on the first. Yeah. Excuse my head, guys. So yeah, bless style, reach out to me. And um, I'm probably booked about a week and a half out, maybe closer to two, but we'll get you on the calendar and I'm more than happy to chat with you. And you can tell me what's going on. Awesome. All right, D. Good seeing everybody. Thank you so much. Next Friday. Yep. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.